All right, I am interrupting our series in the Sermon on the Mount to begin a very brief series that I'm calling Thriving in Exile. Uh, We'll come back to the Sermon on the Mount and move through the rest of it through chapter 7 to the very end uh, following this series, but I want to try and accomplish something unique in this unique moment of history that we're living in. Uh, I think it's key for us as a church to deeply ground our thinking about this season uh, in the nature and character of God and in what it means to be the people of God and then how we can thrive in these uncertain days. And, and of course, there's room for us to lament the loss of this season and to lament the new burdens that we're all carrying that maybe we didn't expect to carry either at this point in our lives or ever. And yes, God is able to hear the cry of our heart as we call out to him. But I think he has more in store for us as a church community in and through this strange season than we may be prepared for. And Lord willing, we will lean into that and then see it continue even beyond. The good news is the scriptures tell a very compelling story about how God's people can and in fact always have thrived in seasons like this. And so I want to walk through that over the next weeks and uh, see what we can learn about him and learn about ourselves and how we might live to his glory. Um, Today, the first thing I want to look at is just trying to answer the question of why I think exile is a suitable metaphor for us living in 2020 in this moment of cultural history, in this moment that we're living in where everything is unsettled, everything is up in the air. Why then do I think exile is a suitable metaphor for this season? What I want to do this morning, just look at that and then shift into the back end of the message, just a few uh, points of application that I think we can take away about how we can thrive in the midst of this season, and then onward into the weeks we will go. So stick with me for the um, time where I just, I'm going to try and set the scene for the whole biblical scope of the idea of exile, this theme that runs from beginning to end. I'm going to try and set that, and then, like I said, take some very practical shots at how we might do this as a community uh, toward the end of the message. So the guiding question for us again, why is the exile, why is exile the right metaphor for us in this season? Why is exile the right metaphor for us in this season? Exile, massive theme that runs all the way through the Bible from the Garden of Eden at the beginning of Genesis to the promise of the new city that is to come at the end of Revelation. All the way through we see a theme of exile and we would even talk about it saying from front to back, this is a story about the exiled people of God coming home. It's a strong enough theme that I can make statements like that about it. It's a story about people who were exiled from their true home due to the consequences of their sin, and then it's a story about how God has made a way for us through Jesus that we might come and find our true eternal home and our eternal rest in him. In Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve disobey the one command that God gave them to obey, and they fall into what the Bible calls sin. It's a willful rebellion against the commands and the will of God. And the consequence of their sin means that there is going to be judgment leveled against them, whereby they will be exiled from their home, from the Garden of Eden. They became, at that point, sojourners or exiles on the way. Their rebellion and sin, in this sense, displaced them from their true home. And they sinned against God, and then they were banished from their homeland in the Garden of Eden. And what happens then is the rest of the Bible tells us the story of the people of God, whereby this exile theme is running, it's a a running thread all the way through it. 
It's one of the overarching narratives of the whole story of, the, of their history as a people, and in fact, our history as a people, as the people of God. And so the story of Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden, it becomes a foreshadow of, of what would then happen in the nation of Israel, and indeed, I think, in our lives, as we wait for God to bring us into our forever home in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if you fast forward about 2,500 years from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and were cast out of the garden and you skip past the stories of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and you move toward the story where Joshua is going to lead God's people into the land of promise, the land that God had promised them. If you fast forward 2,500 years from the garden into their entry into the promised land, you'll see that it was a land uniquely given to them by God. And it was given to them on the one condition that they would remain faithful to the terms of the covenant that he had made with them. And as you might have predicted, their obedience was not great and this did not go entirely well. They disobey God, their hearts grow cold toward him, and they wander from him in rebellion and disobedience. Now, if you fast forward about a thousand years from then, thousand years from Joshua leading God's people into the promised land. And it's about 3,500 years, at least 3,500 years, from Adam and Eve being exiled and cast out of the Garden of Eden. We meet a prophet named Habakkuk. He's got this little prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's an oracle. It's, it's quite short. But it leads into something quite profound. And I want us to have a look at it today because basically he is praying and his prayer is a complaint to God about the state of the world and the state of how he perceives God to not be responding in a timely manner to the state of the world. This is what it says, Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Habakkuk's first complaint. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk says a few things here just in these few verses. He says, God, why are you not acting? You're not acting how I think you should be acting right now. He says, why are you tolerating evil like this? He says, I'm asking you for help, and it does not seem that you are hearing me. I'm telling you that things are a mess, and you do not seem to be saving us. He says, there is wicked stuff going on all around us. Why do you just allow it? Does that not sound like some of the complaints we as followers of Jesus perhaps have made in recent years? When we look at the state of the world, have we not at times made complaints, either outwardly, verbally, or at least inwardly in our heart, of God, where are you? Do you not see the evil? Do you not see your name being smeared? Do you not see your people suffering? Where are you? Then he says something that's very interesting. He says the law is paralyzed, that there is no justice, and the righteous are overwhelmed by the wicked. Okay. Those who want to serve God are being oppressed by those who are in open rebellion against him. That's what Habakkuk is saying. Now, that's easy to understand. The people of God trying to serve God, wicked nations come in and persecute them and harm them. That's not actually what he's saying. What he's getting at is that the wickedness 
and the open rebellion happening is happening within God's people. That there are some, a remnant of faithful people, who want to serve and honor him with their whole lives. And there are others within their community who are disobeying God's law. They are perverting justice and they have wayward hearts from him. They're not honoring the law of God. Habakkuk says, things are a mess right now. Where are you? Habakkuk is talking about the wickedness that's happening within his own community. And God answers him. Look at this in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God says, I know, I hear you, and I'm about to do a shocking work in the world. Now, if we stop right here, the prophet Habakkuk has got to be thrilled, right? He has made a complaint to God. He has highlighted a few things that he thinks the Lord may have missed about the wickedness going on in his own community. And God says, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm going to do a work in your day that you would not believe if told. God hears his prayer, says he's going to do something about this, but Look at what it says from verses 6 to 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk says things are a mess right now. God says, I know, I hear you, and I'm about to do a shocking work in the world. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God tells Habakkuk he's going to do something, and he's going to use a ruthless and evil nation called the Chaldeans to come in and refine his own people. He is going to come and refine them that their hearts might return to him. The Chaldeans are the people of the new Babylonian empire and God says he is going to use these people, these warmongering people, to judge his own people. He is going to use them to judge his people and we say, well, through what? Listen, through exile. Historically, what happens is the Babylonians come in and they siege Jerusalem and they occupy the nation with their military might and they carry away a bunch of the people of God into exile. And then here's what happens to them in Babylon. We, we've got a really good picture of this in the book of Daniel, which I'm going to come back to next week and probably even in the weeks beyond. But the people of God in exile, I want you to see what happens to them. They are separated from their worship life. All of their worship infrastructure is stripped away. And they're removed from the place of worship. Their communal life as the people of God, they are separated from God's covenant people. Their own community, their own people, they are separated from and they are thereby isolated. They're separated from the normal way that they live in rituals and seasons and celebrations and the way that they honor and worship God through those seasons and rituals and celebrations. And then... In exile, they are pressed to abandon their devotional practices. 
In exile, they are pressured to assimilate to the prevailing culture and the ideology of the Babylonian Empire. See, for these people who were taken into exile, everything changed in a moment. It was a season of disorientation. It was a season of isolation. It was a season of relational fragmentation and untold pressure that had been put upon them. This all happened as though overnight. Nothing they had in place remained the same, and they had to figure out how to serve and worship God without all of the usual infrastructure in place. Does it sound familiar? Habakkuk says things are a mess right now, God, oh God, where are you? And God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now let me be very clear about something. I don't think the novel coronavirus was raised up and unleashed by God on a broken world that he loves. I don't think that's from him. God knows our world is broken and he is in the process of making it whole. I don't think COVID-19 is sent by God. I don't think that's who he is. I think COVID-19 is a product of a fallen world that groans under the weight of sin. But here's what I do know. Our sovereign God does not waste a crisis. I don't think this is from God, but I know This is being used by God. God is letting us realize just how vulnerable we humans are in a broken world. God is letting us experience just how much we are not in control of our existence. God is using the common crisis that is experienced in all the nations. It's being experienced in the life of his people around the globe. And he is allowing a common crisis to minimize our divisions and unite us as one. In his mercy, God is bringing us to the place where we cry out to him for help and salvation. And I think at a deeper level, at least for those who are being attentive in this moment of time, God is helping us to realize that life on this planet only works when we call out to and depend upon our creator and savior, Jesus. He is the only one who fully understands. God is awakening us to what Romans 8 calls the groaning weight of creation. It's the brokenness and the pain in our world that is the overflow and effect of Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden. It's the overflow and effect of our continued sin. God is using this season for our good and for his glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Here's what I believe. God is good, and he loves the world and his people. God is sovereign, which means he is ruler and Lord and that he is in control. God is our savior, which means he understands our pain and our brokenness and he is doing a mighty work of healing and salvation. 
And in his sovereignty and his goodness and his saving love, we can be assured that whatever evil befalls us, everything that happens to us in life is either purposed or allowed by God to make us more like Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then it says in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. What if we are on the edge of renewal in the church and revival in the nations, all because we're globally enduring something on a scale that we fail to even comprehend? What if? What if we've been pressed into an exile of sorts in this season, whereby our idols are dethroned, and God calls us back to himself? What if those who have not yet experienced the transformative love of God and who are not yet followers of Jesus, what if they begin to question the foundation they've built their life upon and they begin to consider that perhaps Jesus is who he claims to be? Look among the nations and be astounded. <laughs> Doing a work in your day that you might not believe unless you were experiencing it. So that's why I think exile is a good metaphor for the season of time we're living through. The question we have to ask ourselves then is how do we respond in it? The first thing is basically what I just laid out. In exile, you need to understand the time and the season and what God is doing and trust that he is in control and that he is working for our good and for his glory. That's the first thing we need to do to thrive in exile. The second is that in exile, you need to realize you're not alone and actually lean into the rootedness and groundedness of community in Christ. One of the disorienting things about this season is the way our community life has been disrupted as, as far as gathering together Sunday to Sunday, gathering together in person, in community groups, being able to see each other, lay hands on each other, pray for each other, serve one another communion, worship together where we're in a room full of people hearing their voices. It's disorienting to have all of that just dissipate so quickly. And when isolation is the order of the day, we need to lean into community with more intentionality than we ever have before. We talk about this all the time here. We are Christ City. Christ City is not a place. Christ City is not a building. Christ City is not an event that happens on a week-to-week -week basis. Christ City is a local expression of the people of God who are called to God by grace through faith in Jesus and then are sent by God out into the darkness of the world that we might shine some light of the good news of Jesus around the city that needs it so desperately. It's who we are. I'm going to get into this way deeper next Sunday, but let me say we need each other. Uh, you may be doing really wonderful, and, and I praise God for that. Um, others need you. You may be hanging on by a thread, and you're wondering how you're going to get through this season. I'm telling you, we're here. Together, we can get through this. Together, we can actually grow through this, and I really truly believe that together we can thrive in the midst of this 
sort of exile that we're enduring. This might be a season for physical distancing, but it is not a season for social distancing. Now, there are somewhere around 600 people who would call Christ City Church South Vancouver home, uh, which means there's about you know, would be upwards of 450 adults and 150 youth and children. Uh, we've currently got 13 community groups, which represent about 150 to 200 of those adults, which means there is currently no Christ City infrastructure in place for meaningful online face-to-face interaction and community for hundreds of you. And we know that. So next Sunday, I'm going to roll out a plan for House Church Online, which is our plan to help meet that need in the months to come. Uh, Our team have designed a plan that will carry us from now until the end of August in house churches, and then we can pivot from there and change things as we go. We're in this for a while. Uh, If if I'm wrong, and if we, we as a team are wrong, and we don't actually need this infrastructure in place until the end of August or beyond, there will be no one happier than me. Uh, But I do think we have to be prepared for it and provide a way for us to engage in meaningful community beyond what we currently have in place. We need to take a cue from the prophet Jeremiah, who actually wrote a letter to those who were in exile in Babylon, and he instructed them on how to live. And this is what he said, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, I'm going to linger on this next week as we talk about the communal aspect of the church and how we can serve our city and actually seek the welfare of our city. I'm going to linger on some of that next week. But our goal is to roll all of our existing community groups into online house churches. And then our goal is to add 7 to 12 new online house churches in the weeks to come. And we have the lofty goal of having every single person who's a part of the body of Christ City, connected in to an online house church where we know who you are and we know how you're being served. We want to care for you in this season, and this is one of the means that we can put in place where we can know and be assured that you're being cared for. We're building this plan now. We're going to launch it over uh, next Sunday and then beyond, Um, and so you can stay tuned here. But if you feel called to lead a new house church and you feel called to facilitate some online community in that way, don't worry that you don't know how that's going to look. What you can do if you sense that call is email me at brett at christcitychurch.ca. Be really pleased to help equip you and serve you in this, that you might lead well through this season. And I would just want to say to you, it could be that you've been called to serve in such a time as this. And so if you have that inclination, would you please reach out to us? You can email me directly, reach out to the office. We want to be in contact with you and train and equip you and set you up for success as you give leadership to a community in this new season. So how do we thrive in exile? Well, first, in exile, understand the time and season and what God is doing and trust that he is in control and working for our good and his glory. That's the first thing we do to thrive in the midst of exile. Second, in exile, realize that you're not alone and lean into the rootedness and groundedness of the community of Jesus' church. And then third, in exile, lean into those spiritual practices that unite us together as one. 
This is part of facilitating online house churches. Um, Christ City, we will only thrive in exile so long as we keep a right view of God in mind and so long as we experience an even deeper sense of community and know that we're not alone and so long as we continue to engage in spiritual formation within that community and alongside that community as each of us seek and find God in the midst of our own pain and anguish. That's the only way we're going to thrive. A big view of God, an understanding of the importance of community and how we can then come along alongside our community as individuals in community and maintain our spiritual disciplines as we keep engaged in scripture and prayer. Again, I'm going to have a lot more to say about thriving in exile next week with those specific practices, but for now know this. The end of our exile is not quote-unquote going back to normal. I think normal is gone. I think a new normal will emerge. It will be a new normal that glorifies God in a more substantial way. Our exile is not over by going back to normal. The end of our exile is actually wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus and how he has promised to bring us home into the true and better promised land of new creation at the end of the age. Peter the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' first disciples, he wrote to a group of people whom he called exiles. In his letter, he wrote to those people living in exile and suffering in exile and longing for that eternal home. And in that letter, he reminded them of something that is of paramount importance. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The only hope we have in the midst of this season is that Jesus has brought us to God. The only way we can be assured of our salvation and of our entrance into the long-promised forever home of heaven is through the finished work of Jesus who atoned for sin and brings us into eternal relationship with God. Christ City, we can make it through this season. We can thrive in this weird season of exile if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and remember that he has promised to bring us home. Let me pray. Father, I ask you that you would drive this deep into the core of our being, that we would have a right view of who you are, that we would know that you are sovereign and in control. Father, I ask you that you would help us to understand not only our need for community, but our community's need for us, and that you would help us, God, to lean into that in practical, tangible ways on a day-to-day basis. And Lord, I ask that you would enliven in us by your spirit that desire to linger in your word to connect with you in prayer and to serve and love those around us jesus all our hope is in you help us to remain steadfast in this moment of time we pray in jesus name amen